The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Well, we're nearing the end of this section of Matthew, which has been chapters 8 and 9, which, as, as we've said, has had nine miracle sections, three miracles each, and then in between those there have been these punctuated discussions about discipleship and following the Lord and the mission that He has. So this morning we're going to be looking at just a few short verses, verses 14 through 17, where some disciples of John come and inquire of Jesus about fasting. So please, if you would, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. And while you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we need you to understand your word. Lord, thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you have delivered to us truth. And I ask right now that you would speak your truth through me, but most significantly that your truth would be made alive in our hearts as we hear it from your word. Lord, help us to draw near to you in this time. Help us to draw near to Christ during this time, which is the goal and the purpose of our worship. Father, be with us, we pray, in the name of your Son. Amen. Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and, a worse, and the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." This is the word of the Lord. Well, though these are just a few short verses, there are a lot of questions that come up in them, and we saw that Tuesday night as we gathered as men. What does a wedding have to do with fasting? Why are we talking about mending clothes? What are wineskins? And not least of all, just what is fasting? And how should fasting play into the life of a believer? Well, I believe there's two significant items for our consideration this morning, and so we're going to take a look at both of them. First, there's the overarching lesson that the Lord is seeking to teach that I believe is related to but independent from the specific practice of fasting. And then second, there is fasting itself, a practice that's largely underutilized and misunderstood in modern Western Christianity. And because we both want to understand the primary message of a passage, and because we want to have opportunity to talk about fasting, something that should be a regular part of our experience as Christians, we're going to dive into both of these things this morning. Well, when it comes to that overarching theme, what the Lord is teaching, I say that in some ways it's independent of fasting because the Lord identifies something in the question about fasting that extends beyond just this issue. And it's a question that affects our entire approach to God and how we worship Him. 
Through this question and response, the Lord reveals that He is both the goal and the guide to our worship. So first, the Lord is the goal. Our passage starts with the disciples of John approaching Jesus. This would be John the Baptist. Now, we aren't told much about the disciples of John, but if they followed him closely, these would be people committed to a life of extreme devotion. John lived a life of self-denial so as to be fully committed to making known the coming kingdom of God. John preached repentance of sins as a means for preparing the way for the coming king. We're told in the scriptures that John was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Some even describe John as the very last Old Testament prophet, pointing forward towards the Messiah. And so these disciples of John would have been people devoted to this message, people who were eager for the coming Messiah. People who took their religious devotion very seriously. However, it seems from our passage here that these disciples had made an idol out of their religious practice and had not yet grasped that Jesus was the very one that John was proclaiming and that they were waiting for. And so they take issue with Jesus and his disciples. We saw a few weeks ago the scribes taking issue with Jesus' healing power and his proclamations of the forgiveness of sin. Jeff showed us last week the Pharisees taking issue with Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners. And now here we see yet another complaint against Jesus, albeit indirectly with regard to the practice or lack thereof of his followers fasting. They say to him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? We know from other places, such as Luke 18, which Jeff actually mentioned last week, that the Pharisees had a custom of fasting twice a week. The Pharisees, as we see throughout the Gospels, had created structures of religious practice that exceeded what even the Scriptures had commanded, And they use these structures often to support not heartfelt worship, but to promote self-righteousness and a false pride-filled religiosity. And it seems that the disciples of John had taken to this pious practice themselves. And so they come and they confront Jesus from their perspective. Those truly committed to holiness, to godliness, should observe this fasting regimen, And from what they could observe, Jesus' disciples were failing on this front. They wanted Jesus to explain himself and explain why he would allow his followers to slack in such a way. Well, Jesus uses this opportunity, as he always does, to bring course correction to their pious judgment of his disciples by putting before them yet again just who he is, and what that means for all manner of our worship. What Christ gets at in his response to them about wedding feasts is that they need a reorientation of the goal of their fast, a reorientation that would be shocking if Christ were not, in fact, the Son of God. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. A wedding was a joyous occasion, just as it is today, one of great celebration. And if the bridegroom had arrived, the party was on. No, no one's fasting at a wedding. Once things were underway, it was a time for feasting, not for fasting. That's not what you do at a wedding. It's a time for joy. It's not a time for mourning. By using this wedding analogy, the Lord is accomplishing some very significant things for us. First, and most significantly, he's saying that he is, in fact, the bridegroom. We sang this in one of our songs this morning. This is an astonishing claim. Throughout the Old Testament, God declared himself to be our betrothed. God was the husband. Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hosea 2, I will betroth you to me forever. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. God had promised his people that he himself would come as their husband. As the bridegroom. And now, here is Jesus equating himself with the bridegroom. The one who Israel had been waiting for with eager anticipation. Unless you think that I'm stretching the metaphor further than it was intended to go, think about the implications of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, why do we fast? We fast in longing, we fast in anticipation, we fast to draw near to God, lament, request, and seek His face. But once the bridegroom has come, there's no need for such a thing. If Jesus were not claiming for Himself divinity, if Jesus were not equating Himself with God, then this would be heresy. He'd be saying, don't devote yourself to God when you have me. But He can say this. And he does say this because Jesus is Lord, one with God himself, and is in fact the end and the means of our worship. When we worship Christ, we worship God. When we worship God, we do so through Christ. He says to these disciples, you're forgetting the point of your fasting, and you don't realize who I am. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the husband. I'm your very maker. And when I'm with you as the way I am now, there's no need to fast. I am near. I am present. And there is ample reason to rejoice. Now, he does make clear in what is one of the first hints in Matthew's gospel of his coming crucifixion. Likely, his followers wouldn't have understood what he meant by he was going away. That a time is coming where he will be taken away. And in that time, there will be reason to fast. But as it was, there was a nearness of God in the earthly presence of Christ Jesus that made mournful fasting inappropriate. Now was the time to rejoice. God was in their midst. This is foundational for us. It roots all of our expressions of worship. There are a lot of good things that we can do. We should pray. We should fast. We should read our scriptures. We should tithe. We should care for the needy. We should pursue righteousness. But if we're ever doing those things apart from Christ, 
If we forget to whom, for whom, and by whom we do them, if they're not bringing us closer to Jesus, then they're worthless. Christ is the goal of our worship. Indeed, Christ is the goal of all worship. If you're here this morning and and you worship someone other than the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, if you've not submitted your life to Jesus Christ and asked for the forgiveness that He offers, then your worship is not true worship. You can pray, you can attend whatever religious institutions you like, you can meditate, you can think positive thoughts, but none of those things will draw you any closer to the truth or the divine source of all joy if you're not doing those things in the name and presence of Jesus Christ. He's the one we want to be near and with. He's the one we want to be like. He's the one that we need above all else. This is what Jesus is saying to these people. You fast and longing will long no more because I'm here. I've arrived. Did they truly love Christ or did they love the sense of superiority they experienced in their fasting? Intimacy with God through His Son by the power of His Holy Spirit is the goal of worship. Fasting is not the ends, it's the means. Coming to church is not the ends, it's the means. Praying is not the ends, it's the means. It's the way in which we draw near to our God and glorify Him. But Christ doesn't stop there. He goes on with these two other images, which is where I think He takes this discussion a step further. He says, you're uncomfortable with my disciples not fasting. It doesn't fit your preconceived notion of what righteous living looks like. Well, be prepared because the new work I'm doing will shake up many things that you are used to. If we want to draw near to God, we must follow what He says and worship Him as He calls us to. We don't get to create our own system of truth. So Jesus is the goal and Jesus is the guide to our worship. I spent over a decade in corporate America and for most of those years I worked for two very ambitious and growing insurance companies. That means that there were often new processes that got put into place, new systems to be implemented, and new initiatives that were rolled out. And if you've ever worked in such a setting, or you've ever tried to implement changes in your personal life or in your household, you're well aware of how hard it can be for people to accept something new. I remember one time at my previous job, we were implementing a new way of handling our emails. It was just how we handled our emails. You would have thought people were being asked to work for free. It was very poorly received. And because I had become identified as a peacemaker in the office, I was put in charge of navigating the complaints and the oppositions to the email process. It's remarkable how resistant we can be to change, even small ones. When we're so used to doing something a certain way or we have our own opinions on how something should be done. Well, Jesus identifies this about our nature and sees in this question a bit of that kind of opposition. He knows that with his coming, he's bringing the kingdom, which meant that many things would change. 
So he uses these two images that would have been quite easy for the original hearers to grasp, even if they sound a little bit strange or foreign to us. The first is easy enough. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. This image is clear. If you have a cloth that's no longer shrinking and you cut a new piece of fabric perfectly to fit it, when that shrinks, it's going to rip and pull the garment with it. The second isn't as obvious, but in Jesus' day, wine was put into wineskins, vessels made from tanned animal skins to be stored and fermented. When you had new wine, you put it into a newly prepared wineskin so that as the wine fermented and bubbled, that that wineskin would stretch because it was pliable, it would stretch with the wine. However, over time, as that settled down and the, the skin aged, it would harden. So if you then put new wine into this old wineskin that was no longer pliable, when that new wine started to ferment, started to expand, there'd be nothing for that wineskin to do but burst, ruining the wineskin and ruining the wine that would spill out upon the floor. You needed a new wineskin for the new wine. Both of these images are saying the same thing. You've been doing something a certain way. You're used to certain traditions and expectations in your life and even in your life with God, but with my coming, with the coming of the kingdom, I bring something new. Not in opposition to the old, at least not the old as God intended it, but a new work that takes over from the old. And if you try and take this new thing and tack it onto your old customs, your old traditions, your old ways of thinking, it simply won't work. Now, I don't think it's 100% clear what traditions Jesus is referring to as the old garment and the old wineskins? Is this purely the old covenant, the law, and the old system of sacrifices? Is this the human traditions that had been set up and established by the scribes and the teachers of the law? We don't get a description of this parable the way we do some, and I believe Jesus probably is addressing all manners of these types of things. But what is clear is that Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a part of the coming kingdom, then you must be ready to follow me even if it means changes, even if it means a new way of thinking, even if it means your understanding of how you walk out your religious life shifts some. Now, Jesus is not saying, like we do today, down with tradition, Jesus does not hate tradition for tradition's sake. He's not saying old is bad and good is new in a sweeping modern kind of way. But he's saying that with his coming, with the new covenant in his blood, there are new things that are going to take place. And they must be ready as new wineskins and new garments to receive those, th those things. What are some examples? Well, for one... We know that many of the Jews struggled with accepting the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom. Even though God had made clear that was his intent from the beginning, it took dreams and revelations and even rebukes to help the people realize this is a new age and there's a significant movement of the Spirit taking place outside the blood family of Abraham. For another, there's the law. Christ does not despise the law. Rather, he said he came to fulfill 
the law and brought with him the new age of the Spirit. In the Spirit age, we're not bound in the same way Israel once was to the law of God. But we're bound in conscience, directed by the Spirit, walking in step with God's very heart. A great example of this is found in the book of Galatians. Paul has strong words for the Galatian church who was trying to take the new wine and stick it into the old wineskin of the law as it pertained to circumcision. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated then to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's a change of thinking for the Jewish people. That's new wine that's been given. And it's not just their relationship with the law or the inclusion of the Gentiles that would be new to them, but the very way in which they would relate to God through His Spirit. You can imagine people being very uncomfortable with seeing the day of Pentecost, these men speaking in foreign languages and all the things that are taking place, just as some in our day are made very uncomfortable by various works and manifestations of the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit would come in power on a very select few, the prophets, the judges, the kings. But Jesus is bringing a new wine, and God's Spirit was going to be and now has been poured out in power on all of His people. This was a new way of experiencing nearness and closeness with God. And so Jesus sees the objections of these men about the way his disciples are handling fasting as indicative of their hearts toward him. Would they accept the way of salvation he was going to offer through his blood, a salvation that comes by faith and faith alone, or would they try and cling to the law, add to it man-made commands that exceeded even what God had given through the Scriptures? Would they allow him to guide them or would they seek to construct a religion for themselves of their own making? A question we all must wrestle with as well. Because like these men, we all have a tendency of our own to tack things on to God's word that he's given us through Christ. We've got to be very careful not to construct commands where God has not made them. For instance, we should pray, but how often, to some extent, in what manner, and where is a matter of conscience? We need to preach God's Word, but the lengths of my messages, the frequency of our gatherings, the style of our services is largely a matter of conscience. We need to serve and love those around us, but the nature of our service, the extent of it, its frequency is largely a matter of, of conscience. We ought to sing praises to God, but what instruments we use, what songs we sing, and how many is largely a matter of conscience. Yet often, we set these things up as if they are on par with the gospel. 
How often do we try and tack the gospel onto our own constructs of what we think true devotion to God should look like? We mustn't make commands where Jesus gives principles, and we must follow commands when Jesus gives them. These disciples of John and these Pharisees had a practice that they seemed to have elevated to a place of a religious barometer of sorts, and Jesus is correcting that. They were looking on judgment at those around them who didn't practice fasting just the same way that they did. Let's not add to or subtract from what Christ has commanded. Jesus Christ is the goal, and He is the guide to our worship. And now let's take that principle, the idea that all of our worship practices are guided by the Lord and intended to draw us near to Him, and apply it to the specific practice that we see here of fasting. Because while Jesus says that His his disciples weren't fasting at that moment, he says that they would when he was gone. Now, let's be clear, it's a a current trend to fast for health purposes, and there's nothing wrong with that for weight loss, for physical improvement. It's been shown that fasting has many health benefits if it's done properly, but that, of course, is not what we're talking about here. It's not all these people on some diet regimen. We're talking about fasting for spiritual purposes. It's often pointed out that just like Jesus assumed we would tithe and and give to the mission, just as Jesus assumed we would pray, just as Jesus assumed we would gather and read his word, so too he assumed we would fast. He said earlier in his Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, not if, I'm sure you've heard that before, there's an assumption that his followers would fast. But my guess is that for many in this room, myself included, fasting has either never been a part of your Christian walk or has not been a very regular part of it. Not something you think of very often. Donald Whitney has an excellent book called The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And he doesn't mince his words when he writes, how many people do you know who regularly practice fasting? How many sermons have you heard on the subject? At least one now. In most Christian circles, you will rarely hear fasting mentioned. And yet it's mentioned in Scripture more times than even something as important as baptism. Christians in a gluttonous, denialless, self-indulgent society may struggle to accept and to begin the practice of fasting. Few disciples go so radi- few disciplines go so radically against the flesh and the mainstream of culture as this one, but we cannot overlook its biblical significance. Now, I don't know if our lack of fasting is largely due to our overindulgent culture, though I'm sure that's part of it, but I believe a bigger reason is that it's misunderstood, it's been underutilized. And thus, many of us have not been discipled in the practice. We don't see it modeled. We don't see it endeavored into. And so we don't do it. However, Jesus himself, we are told, he says here that his followers would fast. And in fact, that's what we see in the New Testament. We see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit instruct the believers about missional matters during times of prayer and fasting. We see the church commit to prayer and fasting as they installed church leadership. 
It continued after Christ departed. Throughout the scriptures from the very beginning, we read of believers committing themselves to prayer and at times fasting. So, so what is it that we see in the scriptures of this? Well, the fasting we read of most often means restriction from food while taking in some water, though we do read at times of fasting taking on various forms. And there are, of course, the more miraculous fasts of the Lord and, and Moses and some others. Fasting could be private just as the Lord talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. But we also see times in the book of Acts and many times in the Old Testament where an entire group of people would fast together. Indeed, the whole nation would be called to a fast. And most importantly, fasting was done for a purpose. Again, this was not meant to be hollow religious practice for the sake of self-righteous affirmation. Fasting, if done with the right heart, served many God-glorifying purposes. In our passage, we read the Lord mentioning mourning in relation to fast. This is certainly one of the reasons fasts were undertaken. We see in the Old Testament, Israel fasts at times in grief over their sin or in response to evil that had overtaken the nation. But mourning's not the only reason. We fast. In the scriptures, we see Israel fast as a visible sign of repentance for sin and a signal of their commitment to obedience and a new direction, as Whitney puts it in his book. We actually see this of the nation of Nineveh. After the prophecy of destruction was delivered to them by the prophet Jonah, they fasted, they put on sackcloth and ashes, and they repented. We see fast done as an expression of humility before God. Fasting is often done to strengthen our prayers. The Lord uses fasting to support our prayers, and we often see Him respond in the Scriptures to the prayer and fasting combination. Read the book of Esther. And though God's name is not actually mentioned in this book, His divine sovereignty and providence is written all over the story. And we see in the story of Esther the Jewish people committing to fasting and weeping and lamenting in response to the great evil that had been plotted against them. And what does the Lord do in response? He works for them a great deliverance. But that's not all. We see in the book of Acts the believers fast and pray for guidance. We see the believers seek protection and deliverance through fasting Fasting can be a means of seeking strength to pursue holiness and protection from temptation. And fasting can simply be a means of worship and expression of devotion to the Lord. For example, we see this in the prophetess Anna who was waiting the Messiah and who it says, never left the temple but worshiped night and day fasting and praying. It's clear Fasting serves many purposes, and fasting is meant to be a part of the life of the believer. We heard all these different ways that fasting was utilized. So now we have to ask why. Just what does fasting do? Why does it serve these purposes? Well, a few thoughts. For one, the practice of fasting reminds us of our need. As believers in an age of excess opulence, entertainment, and comfort. Fasting can be a forced reminder to us that all that we have comes from the Lord. When we are in plenty, it's easy to forget Him. 
And though it seems like we have all that we need, what we need more than anything is Him. More than food, more than clothing, more than television, more than the internet or a car or a bank account. When we fast, we remind ourselves that above all things, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness and that it is the Lord who must provide. Fasting also helps us set aside time for God. We're very busy people. We're busy. That's what we say in response. How are you doing? Well, I'm busy. If we decide to fast, we're dedicating that time to the Lord that we might have otherwise been using for meal prep, consumption, or cleanup. Fasting also shows our seriousness in our prayers. Though we never want to demand of God or act as if He's some divine vending machine, fasting shows the depth and seriousness with which we are petitioning for whatever the cause may be. It shows the reality of our longing for Jesus and the kingdom that He is bringing. I like how John Piper puts it. He says, the heart of it, fasting, is longing. We're putting our stomachs where our heart is to give added intensity and expressiveness to our ache for Jesus. We fast to express our longing or our ache for all the implications of Jesus' power in the present moment that isn't completely realized. We want to see people healed. We want to see people saved. We want to see marriages redeemed. We ache and we long for this to happen. Therefore, we ask Jesus to come by putting this exclamation point of longing at the end of our desires. And finally, fasting helps in our pursuit of holiness. When we practice self-control in one area, it helps us then exercise self-control in other areas, even in areas of sin. I found this to be true in my life, even apart from explicit fasting. The more I have control over my eating habits the more I feel strengthened to resist other areas of temptation in my life. Now, I'm someone who happens to like food. I like eating. So maybe it wouldn't mean as much to you if you don't care about food. But as someone who does, when I can exercise that restraint, it strengthens me to exercise restraint in other areas. And it's good for us to be stretched in those ways. The benefits of fasting are numerous. And I'm certain are not... This is not the full extent of the list. Just as with prayer, we need to be people who believe and are committed to the idea that the Lord encourages, welcomes, and responds to our fasting. I do believe that there is a great tool and weapon in the work of the Lord that we are not accessing when we are not engaging with fasting to some extent in our walks. Now, practically speaking, what does this look like? especially for those who've never fasted. Well, at the very least, I would say we should be open to the idea of fasting. If you have resistance to it, if you're sitting here thinking, I want nothing to do with that, we need to check our hearts and let the Lord work on them because this is something that the saints have done throughout the ages and the Lord has even at times called to. He called for a fast on the Day of Atonement. He, through the prophets, called for the people to fast. The Lord intends this to be a means for us to cry out to Him. But beyond that, fasting should likely be a regular. Now, I won't define regular. 
for the very purpose of what we discussed earlier. I'm not wanting to set up some system. Everyone at Valley Creek has to fast once a week. If you don't, you're clearly not obeying the Lord. But it should be a regular part of our experience with God. That could mean doing something weekly or monthly or yearly. Whatever it may be, it should be something we think about and have in our toolkit that we use to draw near to the Lord. We should be doing fast privately, and we should be fasting together. Hobie Clark actually has some ideas on how we might fast and pray together more as a congregation. I'm excited to talk through these ideas, and there's going to be more information on that coming. But we'll be able to seek the Lord together in that way. Fasting is most regularly from food, but it can be from other things as well. You could make time for the Lord and prayer by giving up some habit or entertainment for a period of time. We even see Paul in 1 Corinthians say that couples might abstain from intercourse for the sake of their prayers. That's a form of fasting. Fasting can be various lengths, but I would encourage you, I know sometimes we get caught up in zeal and passion, don't endeavor to partake in a fast that would under normal circumstances be a very unhealthy thing to do. If you feel the Lord calling you to some extended fast, don't do that without counsel and, and others involved. I don't, I don't want to limit what the Lord may do or dampen zeal, but there can be times in our zeal that it's actually a cover for either immaturity of faith or trying to use disciplines such as fasting as a tool to manipulate God rather than seek Him. I myself have at times tried to manipulate God through things such as fasting rather than genuinely pursuing and petitioning Him. I won't eat again, Lord, until you X, Y, or Z. We don't want to put the Lord to the test. In the end, we are to be a people who hunger and thirst for the Lord. We long to be with our bridegroom. And though we have His Spirit, He's not present with us in the way that He was with the disciples. And even then, complete fulfillment had not come. On this side of eternity, before the final day of the Lord, we still groan and await the final consummation of all things. We still cry out in prayer and are still in need of the lessons that fasting gives and the spiritual power that it offers. So let's be a church that hungers for the Lord and for His kingdom above all else. Who would be willing to forego any feast if it meant more time with Christ and that His kingdom work might be accomplished? And if you're sitting here thinking, this all sounds strange to me, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, I encourage you to consider Him. As a congregation of believers, we found Jesus to be worthy of all worship. He gave up his life that we might have eternal life with him through the forgiveness of our sins. We have tasted and seen that he is good. And we've come to realize that even at times, if we might have to do something as foreign as fasting to remind ourselves of our need or to experience the nearness of the Lord, so be it. Because Christ exceeds any earthly thing that we might enjoy. And we know, and I love this, we know that in eternity, beyond this broken and sinful world, there will be no more need of fasting. It will be an unending celebration of the redemption that Jesus Christ has won. An eternal feast 
celebrating, delighting in the presence of God forever. And he welcomes us all into that. He welcomes you into that if you've not yet turned to him. So let's be a church who hungers and thirsts for that great and glorious day and who believes that we can with confidence draw near the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that we would believe that you hear and you respond. Pray, Lord, that we would believe that you are near to us, that you have given us your spirit, that we can come before you and boldly request. I pray that we would be a praying church, Lord. I pray that we would be a church who clings to you, a church who groans over the brokenness of this world, a church who's willing to forego temporary delight if it means petition, if it means drawing near to you, if it means getting close to you, if it means crying out for the sake of the broken and the brokenhearted. Father God, make us a people who are hungry for you, who hunger for that above all else. Pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.